0: So tonight we're returning to an old friend. Um, We have spent uh, many months away from the book of Philippians, but we're going to head back there tonight because we're going to finish the book. We're in the beginning of chapter 4. And um, we spent a good bit of time in Philippians last fall and then again during uh, the ordinary time after Epiphany. And then we've been on some seasonal themes for a while, and now we're going to come back and tackle Philippians just by way of review, Philippians is this, this letter of friendship in many ways written from the Apostle Paul to the church in Philippi. Paul, most likely in a Roman prison cell in the early 60s, writing to the church in Philippi, uh, about 12 years after he founded this church. And the letter is filled with themes of growth in Christ, of how it is to walk deeper in this fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so it's a letter that's pointing to this deepening in Jesus, and Paul is upholding for the Philippians a way of life that was modeled most of all in Jesus, and that was then modeled again in um, in Paul's own following of Jesus. This this way of of selfless sacrificial love, of emptying oneself, this cross-shaped way of life. And so we get to the beginning of chapter four, and he says, "Therefore, uh, my brothers, I want you to stand firm thus in the Lord." And what he's saying is, "I want you to stand firm." in this way of pouring out your life for the sake of loving people around you. So he's just finished this this really tour de force from the end of chapter 1 right up to this moment, talking about this this way of the Christian life, this way of the cross, really, way of pouring out our lives. And so he goes from there almost suddenly uh, to these interesting verses that we're going to focus on tonight, which I, I really trust have a message for us here at Church of the Cross to where he says I urge or I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. And you think for just a moment like what's going on here? We've just been at the heights of the height of looking at of hearing about who Jesus is and what he's done and what he's calling us to do in in life and and Paul just sort of abruptly stops that that beautiful portrait, if you will, of what the Christian life is to be, and comes down to this really micro-situation and names names and addresses these two women in the church in Philippi. And it sort of leaves us, I think, perhaps a bit perplexed. We're like, can't you do something a little bit more exciting than that uh, after this this long kind of uh, jaunt through the Christian way? Um Isn't there something like deeper? Can't we talk about something a little bit more uh, adventurous and wonderful about the Christian life? But but what Paul is doing quite brilliantly is he's cutting against this tendency that we have towards compartmentalization in our lives, where we tend to say, you know what, I've got the God section over here. And traditionally, we've associated that with things like church going, or Bible study attending or volunteering uh, at some kind of function surrounding my church. But then I've got my own life sort of sectioned off over here, and this is the part that I get to choose and decide, my schedule, my time, um, my priorities, my ambitions. And we, 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 in a sense, we kind of work to separate these two things out. And Paul says no, with this kind of interesting twist here at the end of the letter to the Philippians. He says basically, God is not going to leave you alone. God is going to infiltrate every little part of your life. There is no such life of a Christian. There's no life of a Christian that is um, saying, okay, these are the things that belong to you, God, and these are the things over here that belong to me. And I'm going to get to do my thing over here, but when I'm on your time and in your place, I'll do your thing. Uh, this verse, this, uh, this sort of understated verse in Philippians 4, verse 2, cuts against the grain of all of that. And what Paul, in a sense, is advocating for in the rest of the, the, the letter of Philippians is that. God is going to get into your life. He's going to get into your calendar. He's going to get into your pocketbook. He's going to get into your friendships. He's going to get into your relationships. He's going to get into every aspect of who you are. So we're looking for the next few weeks at this um, series that we'll call Living in the Real World, with no allusions to the MTV reality series. Um, But Living in the Real World, where Paul is dealing with real-life issues such as, tonight, relational discord and conflict, something that... I'm sure all of us can identify with at some level. He deals with, with anxiety and worry. He deals with um, peace or the lack thereof. He deals with what we're supposed to think about um, or what we're, who we're supposed to emulate. He deals with, um, with, with money and generosity and giving and partnership. And he also deals with contentment and whether or not we have contentment. These are issues that we face living life in the world that we know. So we're going to get to kind of jaunt through these things look at these different topics as we move through the rest of Philippians over the next few weeks together. Um, Back to verse 2. There's a lot that we don't know. Uh, Let me read verse 2 again. It says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. That's it. That's the primary focus of our time together tonight. There's a lot that we don't know about Euodia and Syntyche. This is kind of like getting fame, but for all the wrong reasons. You know, you, you wouldn't really have wanted to have your name attached to this issue and then be canonized um, and studied and dissected uh, for the rest of your lives or the rest of history. But such is the lot of Euodia and Syntyche. They're two women. They're two believers. Their names are written in the Book of Life. And more than that, they're actually mature believers who have labored side by side. Paul uses this this word that evokes athletic, gladiatorial, imagery of fighting this fight together alongside Paul. So we're not just talking about two fresh converts. So certainly they couldn't have been converted that long ago. These were two significant people in the church in Philippi, laboring side by side with Paul for the sake of the gospel in Philippi. Let me just note one thing here um, that's not necessarily on target with the main thrust of this sermon. But that is to say the importance, I want you to note the importance of women in the early church. Um, the church has uh, fallen into some great traps in its day um, of, of undermining the role and the importance of women in the ministry of the local church. And there's no doubt, at least in, in this reference here, that Paul is... is is speaking to this, this, this issue, at least somewhat indirectly, by naming these two. And not by he's not scolding them. He's entreating them. He's urging them as a friend and as a brother in the Lord, as a fellow worker in the Lord. These are two women who have had some kind of significant role in the ministry and the life of the, Philipp, the Philippian church. And I want to say, just um, as a note on record, that at Church of the Cross, we, we want to be a church that prioritizes and values the ministry of women in the local church. And I'm not speaking to any issue or any grumbling or mumbling out there, but just out of this text, wanting to make that point for us as a community, that men and women are equal in God's sight, and they're given gifts and and functions and called to, to expend those gifts in the life of the local church and the local community for the sake of the glory of God. And we see that here in, in, uh, in the Philippian church. Not to mention the fact that the Philippian church was started outside the gates of Philippi in Acts 16 with Lydia and a bunch of other women who are meeting out at, by this little creek to, to pray. And that's where the, the Philippian church got its beginning. So I just want to make that statement. So these women have been mature in the Lord. They're laboring side by side with Paul for the gospel. But there's some kind of substantial disagreement going on. There's some kind of substantial issue. It's substantial enough that Paul has gotten word of this in his Roman prison cell, probably from Epaphroditus, who was sent from the the Philippian church to minister to Paul's needs, but he's caught word of it. And not only has he heard of it, but then uh, he's chosen to address it in this letter, a public letter, written to the entire Philippian church. So we know this is an issue of somewhat high profile in the Philippian community, at least high enough of a profile for Paul to mention it in the letter. And it's probably likely that this disagreement or this issue between these two women has developed into some kind of rivalry, um, some kind of dissension that has Paul deeply concerned uh, about the Philippian church. So he exhorts them simply, agree, agree in the Lord. This is his exhortation to them. Actually, the phrase here is exactly the same as the phrase from chapter 2, verse 2. where Paul Paul writes these words. He says, If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Exact same phrase. By being of the same mind. Literally, it's to think the same thing. Having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit There's that rivalry echo. We begin to see that his exhortation to the Philippian church had some kind of specific target behind it, which I think gives justification for every preacher to speak to specific issues in the congregation from the pulpit. Um, That's what Paul's doing here, at least. Um, No, not a practice I always would recommend. But... um, he says, uh, in humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is his exhortation about the way of, of the people of God, this way that he's commending. And so he says that to them. He says, I want you to agree. I want you to be of the same mind. I want you to think the same thing. Agree together in the Lord. And, and let me just say that the under, the overwhelming concern of Paul in the book of Philippians is that the gospel would go forth in Philippi through the church. That's what he's longing for. So he's not asking just for agreement for the sake of agreement. But he's saying, I want you to agree in the Lord for the sake of mission, for the sake of this overwhelming passion that I have to see the gospel go forward in your city through your witness and testimony as a, as a family, as a people of God. You want, he wants them to agree because they have a more important job to do together as a community. So that's why he's calling on them to agree. And he says, so agree, but he says agree in the Lord. He adds that phrase, phrase, in the Lord. This takes us all the way back to the chapter 1, verse 1, on September 13th, last fall, when Paul says he's writing to the saints in Philippi, in Christ Jesus, to the saints in Christ Jesus in Philippi. The reality that their lives are lived out in the sphere of Jesus, that Jesus... They are in Jesus in some mysterious and, 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 and wonderful way. There, there's this mystery of being in Christ. And because they're in Christ, there is this way now of life that's been commended for them that Paul writes to them about. And in Christ, there's always much more that we have to agree on than we have to disagree on. The central and primary thing is agreed upon for those who are in Christ. So this agreement that he's urging upon these two women in the congregation is urged because they share this life in Christ together. So Paul commends this agreement in the Lord in a world that is no different than our world today, a world of disagreement, of discord, of divorce, of dissension, of rivalry, of conceit, of competition. He commends this way for these two women in the church. Um. Let me say that being in the Lord means that each one of us has been welcomed into the family of God by an undeserved, wonderful gift of the grace of God in our lives. There's nothing that we've done to arrive at this place that we are as the people of God, in the Lord. It's come simply as a gift. And so we're called, as those who have received this gift, to then welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us. We're called to welcome everyone on the same basis that on which we were welcomed. Because God welcomes all without discrimination on the same basis, on the basis of the death of His Son and what He's done. So this agreement in the Lord is an agreement, first of all, by, the, by virtue of the fact that, that we have, we've arrived in this one place by the same means, which is just the lavish and wonderful grace of God being poured out on you and on me. So we welcome others. But also in the Lord, the whole book of Philippians has been talking about this way of self-emptying sacrificial love for the sake of the church in Philippi. This is the way that you're called to walk. So in the Lord, we're called to walk in a way that is self-emptying, that considers others as more important than our own, that embraces others, that empties oneself, that is meek and lowly and humble. And what this means is that in the sphere of Jesus Christ, where we all live, if we've known, come to know God, that we have no recourse to the to the um, behavior, the action, the heart behind what perpetuates relational discord. Let me say that again: we have no recourse as people in the sphere of Christ, who live in the Lord, to the the conduct, the behavior, and the heart behind it that perpetuates a kind of disagreement in a relational discord. We we have no recourse to those things. And let me explain what I mean. Here's the way it works. You know how it works. You're in a conversation with somebody and they something and, and maybe it's a good friend of yours, perhaps, in the church, and they say something that offends you. Um and and you get hurt and you get wounded. And you let that hurt begin to fester and to sink in and to deepen in your own heart. And so instead of humbling yourself and approaching that person, you entrench. You say, no, I, I've been hurt, and I'm going to kind of own this hurt and let this hurt begin to define me. And so you entrench instead of humbling yourself and going to another person. And that hurt, that issue, whatever the issue was that, that arose, then leads to, a, leads to a, a further kind of defending of your position at some level. Which leads, instead of to unity, it leads to separation. It leads to separation. Instead of serving one another, you're now separating from one another. And one of the ways that we deal with this um, in the 21st century church, that they couldn't deal with it in Philippi back then, was we just leave the church and we go to the next church down the block. And, 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 And there are people in the church who go from church to church and leave a wake of destruction behind them, relational destruction who are never forced to confront the issues that Paul is confronting these two women with in Philippi. And that's a sad commentary on the church today. But that's what happens. We get hurt, then we let that hurt entrench. Then instead of serving one another, we separate from one another. And in that separation, we harden. And that hardening turns to an anger or a contempt or a kind of rivalry, an avoidance, um, instead of a forgiveness that we're called to in Christ. And so what I'm saying that when I'm saying that those of us who are in Christ have no recourse to these kinds of um, attitudes and behaviors, these heart things behind what perpetuates a relational discord. What I mean is that for those of us who have been brought into the Lordship uh, under the Lordship of Jesus, we have a whole new MO. Our needs have been met. We've encountered the grace of God. We've drunk deeply from the wells of living water. And now, instead of those who are being offended and being hurt and then entrenching and pushing away, we are now advocates as those who are emptying ourselves for the unity of the the family. We're not putting our interests above those of another, but we're laying our lives down and we're embracing other people in the love and the grace of God and reaching out to them and and holding on to them and working, as Paul says in Ephesians, um, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We're laboring now, not that our own issue, not that our own perspectives would, would be ascending, but we're laboring for this unity that God has brought to us in Jesus. This is our new kind of MO. So rivalry and conceit are no longer an issue because the ego has been wounded, fatally wounded, and we've been brought into this place now of, of advocating for our brother or our sister, even when they hurt us, even when what they do causes us to push away, potentially, in our flesh. So what Paul's really saying in all of this is he's saying relationships in the church are really, really, really important. They're really, really important. They matter deeply. And his passion for the gospel to go forth in Philippi is being expressed in this peculiar turn in his letter to this exhortation to these two women. He's saying relationships matter. They're not inconsequential, but they're essential in the witness of the local church to the glory of God. They're essential. So we get this reading out of John's Gospel, John 17, that we read in the Gospel reading tonight, that Jesus prays that that we would be one so that what? So that the world might know that you have sent me. And Paul has that understanding as he's writing to the church in Philippi. Relationships are fundamental. So we can't ignore, we can't sweep under the rug the relational tension that we are bound to experience as a community of broken people. About 20 of us gathered this morning to talk about marriage um, at the Vanderbilt's house. And we spent a lot of time talking about conflict and its inevitability um, in our marriages. But it's no, no different in the church, in the family of God. We're broken people. We live in a sinful world and we're sinful people. And we are, we are bound to hurt one another. We're bound to disagree. We're bound to cause issues with one another And it's in that world that we are are called not to perpetuate those things, not to ignore those things, but to healthily in Christ, address those issues and to seek reconciliation, forgiveness, and union once again with one another. So there's a problem with the church that seeks after experience after experience with Jesus but lives its daily life more like a soap opera that's so full of relational unhealth, of unresolved conflict and tension, where you can't be sure of who you can sit next to at a service. But we all come together and we worship the Lord, we have this wonderful worship experience, and then we go back to our backbiting, gossiping um, ways in the world. And Paul's saying, no, 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 this isn't the way that the gospel's going to go forth in Philippi. It's not going to happen in this way. It's only going to happen as we agree in the Lord. So for a church of the cross, for us to have a witness in the city of Boston for the gospel, an effective witness, then the call upon us as a community, and not just on us, I should be very clear here to say, um, there's only one church in Boston, right? With many different manifestations, but there's only one church. So between those different manifestations, those different local churches, organized and visible in slightly different ways, for us, for all of us, to have an effective witness in this city, then we need to pursue a relational health in just the micro, day-to-day life that we lead. Certainly it's true for us as a body at Church of the Cross, but it's also true for the entire church in the city of Boston. So let me ask you just to personalize this. What about you? What about, how, what about your own life? How do you deal with relational tension and discord? Do you approach it humbly and meekly longing for there to be reconciliation, putting your ego aside and taking up this way of the cross, this way that Paul has commended to the church? Or does it fester and does it produce this kind of further unhealth that's bound not just to affect you and the person with whom you're in discord, but also to affect the community because none of us live in isolation. None of our relationships exist in isolation of one another. Paul's not calling Euodia and Syntyche to some superficial ceasefire or truce. But he's calling them to a heart-level unity. The heart-level unity that enables them to come back together again, arm in arm, side by side, laboring together for the sake of the gospel. He's not asking us to agree on all fronts. It's not like, you know, we've got to sing this hymn this week, and if we don't... You know, It's not like we've all got to agree on every little issue of life together and even of ministry together in the church. But he's addressing those issues that arise that then cause us separation, push us away so that we can no longer be linked arm in arm for the sake of the gospel to go forth in the city of Boston. That's the kind of agreement that he's encouraging and exhorting everyone to in Euodia and Syntyche too. Here in Philippi, and that's the kind of agreement that we long for here at Church of the Cross as well. Let me make one final point from verse three. We've just been in verse two, but verse three, Paul goes on and he says, um, "Yes, I ask you, true companion. Nobody really knows who the true companion is. A lot of people guess, but he's he's speaking to one person. Help these women. Help these women." So not only is Paul speaking to these women to urge and encourage them to unity, to agreement in the Lord, but he's asking someone else to come into their relationship, to mediate, if you will, to get involved, to roll up their sleeves and to jump in. So that this kind of union and agreement in the Lord is not something that exists in just relationship to relationship, but it's, it's a family issue that we're all called to work on together. Meaning that none of us can be uh, a passive bystander to the conflict that another set of us are having in the church. Now there's obviously wisdom here. We don't go meddling in affairs that aren't our own necessarily. But there's a call upon us as the body to engage and for there to be a communal discipline of engaging in these issues of discord and disagreement around the church. So he urges them to jump in. And this says two things. Finally, one about us. It says that when we're in situations of relational discord and conflict with another person, we may not see just how inconsistent that situation is with what we profess and believe as those who've been rescued by the grace of God and brought into his life. We may be blind. Euodia and Syntyche were mature believers who had labored side by side. And so that just says that none of us is above the rebuke uh, and the exhortation of a brother and sister in Christ. We, we, in fact, may need that deeply. From, and that's a way that we love one another. So it says that about us, and it says something as well about the community of people around us. Who will we be for others? That's a question. Who will we be in Christ for the sake of others? Will we encourage other people to just kind of walk away, to look the other way, and to say, oh, just forget about it. I'm sure it'll blow over. Just kind of move on. Or will we actually be a voice in people's lives of encouraging and exhorting them To go and face these issues in humility and in meekness. To go and work these things out. What What kind of brother are you in the family? What kind of sister are you in the family? Encouraging and exhorting your brothers and sisters to go and to work these things out and saying, I'll go with you. I'll be a part of this process in your life. I would encourage you to do the good work of agreeing together in the Lord so that our mission and our witness would be unhindered, unencumbered, because we're agreeing together, because we're not letting these issues fester in the community. So this is what's at stake in in this short little snippet here in chapter 4, is Paul saying, I want the church, I want you to be one, because I long for you more than anything else to be side by side, striving together for the faith of the gospel. That's what I long for in the church. And just finally in closing to say that this all arises out of the love of God for us, This arises out of those who have received the grace of God in Christ. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any tenderness and compassion, that's where this exhortation arises from, the life that God has given to his people.